Hello, listeners, and welcome to our very first throwback time machine. When I was writing for the Canadian Wrestling Network for Chris Maloney, I used to uh, send in retro rewind reviews of various pay-per-views and TV shows. Now it's time to take it to the podcast world. In the month of June, we started off with some top five uh, events that happened in the month of June, and we'll continue that on our regular podcast. However, this uh, throwback time machine is going to focus on one singular event, and we'll review how everything went down, break it down, and see what all happened. On this premiere edition, we look back 25 years ago, with the buildup of SummerSlam happening right now, and go to the Palace of Auburn Hills in suburban Detroit, Michigan, as the Lex Express pulled into the arena. Yes, it's SummerSlam Man and Bobby Brain Heenan greet everybody and announce what is going to be happening tonight, including three championship matches. Bobby Heenan claims that there's actually four, as Jerry the King Lawler will be facing Bret the Hitman Hart for the true King of the Ring title, claiming that Bret Hart, even though he won the King of the Ring tournament in June, is an imposter to the crown. The first match of the night had Ted DiBiase take on Razor Ramon. This was a result of Razor's loss to the kid on May, the May 17th edition of Monday Night Raw. Following Ramon's loss to the newcomer, Money Inc. members Ted DiBiase and Erwin R. Scheister teased Ramon about the match. DiBiase offered Ramon a job as a servant, which Ramon angrily refused. Ramon began teaming with the kid for a series of matches against Money Inc., and DiBiase asked for a singles match against the kid, and the kid accepted the challenge. Ramon helped the kid win the match and distracted DiBiase. It was decided that the funds would be settled in two singles uh, matches at SummerSlam, with Ramon facing DiBiase and Scheister facing the 1-2-3 kid. DiBiase attacked Ramon from behind as he was taking off his chains and got the early advantage. However, Ramon was able to come back with a back body drop and a Samoan drop from Ramon. DiBiase quickly went to the floor to slow the momentum of Razor Ramon. DiBiase had gotten back into the ring, but still wasn't enough to thwart the attack of Razor Ramon, who quickly closed on him back over the top rope. DiBiase was slung back into the ring and begged off the attack from Ramon, only to trick him into the, a slingshot in the corner, where then he used the ropes to choke Ramon and even started choking him on the mat. DiBiase came close to having Ramon out for the count with a sleeper hold, 
but Ramon quickly came back after stopping his hand from dropping three times. He hit DiBiase with some elbow strikes, but got stopped with a knee to the gut. DiBiase hit Ramon with a modified rude awakening, followed by a suplex as he set him up for the million-dollar dream. Both competitors started trading blows back and forth. Razor took a spill to the outside after being sent in turnbuckle. While he was on the outside being countered by referee Jimmy Corderas, DiBiase took the time to untie one of the fire turnbuckles, hoping to use it for his advantage. Razor was able to notice it in time and reverse it, sending DiBiase into the exposed turnbuckle, then picked him up for the Razor's Edge for the three count. The winner of the first match was the bad guy, Razor Ramon. This match would mark the final appearance of Ted DiBiase as a WWF wrestler. He injured his neck uh, earlier in the year and was forced into retirement from the ring. Meanwhile, Ramon received a full push in the fall, leading to his first of four Intercontinental Championship title reigns. letting you know that I will be bringing my 20 years of hell tour to London and I'm looking down oh at the London Music Hall man that's an incredible place an incredible venue I know VIP tickets as well as general admission are still on sale and I will be bringing to life that infamous night from 1998 when I walked down the aisle a man returned a legend you won't want to miss it I'll be talking about it probably exaggerating the tales but I'll be doing it right there in London on September 7th yeah, realmcfoley.com, your place to go for tickets and information. That's right. On Friday, September 7th, the London Music Hall, Summer Camp Productions, and Bogart Entertainment present McFoley, 20 Years of Hell, Mankind, Cactus Jack, Dude Love, WD Hardcore Superstar. Climb on board the 20 Years of Hell tour for a thrill ride 20 years in the making. As Mick Foley, professional wrestling's hardcore legend, takes audiences on an in-depth look at the most famous match of his Hall of Fame career and perhaps the most talked about match in sports entertainment history. With its trademark blend of wit and wisdom, wildness and warmth, that shot of two of his memoirs to the top of the New York Times bestsellers list, Foley will use every tool in his arsenal, dozens of classic promos, hundreds of hours on stage, thousands of matches, and almost a million published words to weave a spellbinding web of stories designed to take fans along for the journey back to June 28, 1998, the night of the infamous Hell in a match. It was the night that Foley somehow survived two spine-rattling falls off and through the ominous cell structure. Shrugging off a stint of unconsciousness and finishing the match with a front tooth lodged in his nose. Finding humor in the most unlikely of places, 20 years of hell, brings the laughs but is much more than just a comedic one-man show. He will make you feel like you were there, right there in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, watching history write itself. 
by equal turns of laughs out loud, funny, stunning, and surreal, and heartwarmingly real. 20 Years of Hell is one of the lifetime chances you hear wrestling's finest storytellers talking about the night he walked down the aisle a wrestler and walked away a legend. Each show begins with Mick's recollection of wrestling in the town he was performing in and will conclude with a candid 30 to 45 minute Q&A where all subjects is fair game. Tickets are available now. At limited VIP seats, they're available too. 8 p.m. at the London Music Hall. Before our next match, Todd Pettengill is in the audience interviewing the mother and sister of Rick and Scott's diner. The mother really didn't seem to know or care what Todd was talking about. The father was at home sick, and when Todd asked about her, the sister about bringing guys home, she accidentally slipped and called Rick Rob during that. But they were then interrupted by Jim Cornette, who was going to introduce the Heavenly Bodies as the opponents to the Steiner brothers. The match between the two teams received very little build-up. The Heavenly Bodies were a successful tag team down in, with Jim Cornette and Smoky Mountain, somewhat like a version of the Midnight Express. And they were there to challenge the WD Tag Team Champions for their title. Being this was coming from the uh, Palace in Auburn Hills, the Steiner brothers were obviously the heavy favorites for this match. Jim Cornette introduced his tag team while wearing a neck brace. The Heavenly Bodies consisted of Dr. Tom Pritchard and Gigolo Jimmy Del Rey. The Steiner brothers came out next and gave their mom and sister a hug before entering the ring. This is definitely a far cry in style and image for Scott Steiner compared to what we eventually would see as Big Papa Pump Scott Steiner. The Heavenly Bodies were smart to attack the Steiner brothers as they were trying to get off their jackets. They divided the ring and kept Scott to the outside for a while while they worked over Rick, including a flapjack. But Scott finally made it back into the ring. To help out his brother, sending both heavenly bodies into a corner and monkey flipping Jimmy Del Rey out of the corner. Rick hit Jimmy Del Rey with a Steiner line, followed by Scott hitting Dr. Tom with a belly to belly. They whipped Del Rey into the ropes, only for Scott to grab him and hit him with a tilt whirl slam. Cornette quickly rallied the troops on the outside. Still frustrated over why his team was down. Even after regrouping, it still wasn't enough to hold off Scott Steiner from having dominance over both heavenly bodies. Rick then tagged in and still had the advantage over the heavenly bodies, who had to then, once again, regroup on the outside with Jim Cornette. The Steiner seemed to be having fun with the Heavenly Bodies until Jimmy Del Rey came in to distract Scott Steiner and allowed Bruce Pritchard's brother, T 
Tom to hit a bulldog from behind on Steiner. Then he hit Instaguri, throwing Steiner to the outside. Jimmy Del Rey hit a float over DDT to Steiner and tagged in and out with Dr. Tom. The Heaven Bodies were able to slow down the pace and use some drop toe holds and rest holds to keep Steiner away from his brother Rick. With the referee distracted, Jim Cornette ended up hitting Scott Steiner in the throat with the tennis racket. Del Rey attempted another float over DDT, but was caught for the uh, suplex instead, allowing Scott to valiantly attempt to make a tag. However, he was cut off by Dr. Tom. Thinking he still had the advantage, Dr. Tom Pritchard uh, threw Steiner, Scott Steiner into the ropes and attempted a back suplex. However, he was stopped with... Scott made the hot tag after uh, reversing Pritchard, allowing uh, both brothers to then double-team the Heavenly Bodies. Thinking he still had the advantage, Dr. Tom whipped Scott Steiner into the ropes and put his head down, attempting a back body drop, but he got caught with the suplex. Scott was able to crawl over and hit the hot tag to Rick. Rick hit Steiner lines to both Jimmy Del Rey and Dr. Tom, picking up Del Rey for a body slam, followed by Pritchard for a slam. Rick Steiner hit a top rope bulldog to Del Rey, only for a two count as Pritchard came back in to stop him. Pritchard was able to dump Scott Steiner over the top rope as Rick hit Del Rey with a power slam. Jim Cornette got into the action again, dropping his tennis racket to Pritchard, who hit Rick with it in the back. But still, they were only able to get a two count. Jimmy Del Rey got to the top rope and was held... Jimmy Del Rey climbed to the top rope as Dr. Tom held Rick for him to hit a moonsault. However, Rick got out of the way, and Dr. Tom got hit with the moonsault instead. Scott came back into the ring, and they set up for the Frankensteiner, which was hit on Del Rey, and Scott Rick came back to, for the three-count. The winners of the match, and still, the WWE champions, the Steiner brothers. For a match of two interpromotional uh, teams with not much hype and the per perceived view of the Heavenly Bodies not being that great compared to a WWE tag team, this was actually a very good match and used some old school uh, tag team philosophies. It's the best day of your life, because the realest guy in the room is coming to the 5th Annual London Comic Con. Meet wrestling superstar and rapper Eric Arndt, formerly known as Enzo Amore, now known as The Real One, appearing Saturday and Sunday. The 5th Annual London Comic Con, presented by Start.ca, happens this October 26th to 28th. 
at the Western Fair Agriplex. It's a three-day celebration of art, comics, and pop culture with celebrity guests, vendors, and more. Southwestern Ontario's largest fan event. Come meet from Star Trek The Next Generation, Marina Sirtis, from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, James Marsters, Ted Raimi from Xena Warrior Princess, the Yellow Peril Ranger, Serena Vincent, the young Boba Fett from Star Wars Episode 2, Daniel Logan, from They Live, David Keith, from They Live, Keith David, Mr. McFreely from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, David Newell, and former UFC star and WWF Intercontinental Champion, Ken Shamrock. Plus more announcements still to come. Tickets are on sale now. For tickets and more information, go to londoncomiccon.ca. Thanks to super partners, start.ca, M&T Printing, Lens Mill Stores, Heroes Comics, Toboggan Brewing, Western Fair District, and media partners, London's Best Rock FM96, Classic Rock, Free 98.1, and Fanatics. London Comic Con, October 26th to 28th. Sean Mooney welcoming you to the StarCast Event Center, where it has just been announced that the sold-out event in Chicago over Labor Day weekend will now be available worldwide on fight.tv forward slash StarCast. Thousands of fans from across the world have already made their travel plans to join us in Chicago, but now you can join in on all of the fun from the comfort of your own living room. Fight.tv forward slash StarCast will bring you over 20 live events across four days for one low price well below the suggested retail price of over $260. Stay tuned for details on how you can even get $20 in fight credit. That's right, towards your future purchases with the Platinum StarCast Weekend Pass. Hey, is All In going to be on fight too? Hey, speaking of fight, I think Eric Bischoff and Bruce Pritchard are gearing up for one as they prepare for the Monday Night War debate on Thursday, August 30th at StarCast. They are ready for this. So, Bruce, coming up at Starcast, it's you and I had to head at a Monday Night Wars debate. I have mixed emotions, Bruce, because I've learned to like you and respect you. I was hoping it wouldn't come to this, but you know what I don't respect? I don't respect all the spin, all the distortions, all the lies that you and the WWE had to put out there in order to keep your heads afloat and try to make yourselves feel better about that war. Well, coming up at StarCast, you've got your side of the story. I've got my side of the story. And when it's all said and done, the audience is going to figure out where the truth lies. And it's not always with the victor. And you know that. And I know you're thinking about that. So you know what I'm going to do, Bruce? I'm going to be as kind. I'm going to be as gentle as I can. But when it's all over, I'm hoping that you and I are going to be able to remain friends. If not, it's life. We'll find out. Because I'm bringing it. No brag. 
just fact. Oh, wow. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that winners write the history book. That's why I am going to be the one representing WWE at StarCast in the Monday Night Wars debate. On the other side, the other guy, the other decision maker, the one and the only Eric Bischoff. So finally you get to hear both sides debated why they did what they did, why we did what we did, and how ultimately in the end, only one could remain standing. That was us. And at StarCast, it will be me. Whoa. I think those two are ready to go at it. And I can't wait to see that one. How about you? Ladies and gentlemen, this is Brent Money Banks, and you are listening to Scumbags of Wrestling. Scumbags is money. Joe Fowler was introduced as the latest addition to the broadcast team as he introduced Shawn Michaels and Diesel. Joe asked Sean about his upcoming Intercontinental title match against Mr. Perfect. So up next was the Intercontinental Championship match with Shawn Michaels, with Diesel in his corner, defending the IC title against Kurt Hennig. This rivalry began at uh, WrestleMania when they both got into a brawl backstage after the Lex Luger-Mr. Perfect fight. As Perfect came out, we got a glimpse of Radio WWF, which kind of is a procedure to what we now hear as podcasts. And Jim Ross and Gorilla Monsoon were doing the play-by-play for Radio WWF. Match started off with them trying to feel each other out and trade uh, rest holds and wrestling maneuvers. However, it kind of got weird when they were running the ropes and speeding up it looked like Hennig was supposed to do some sort of arm drag or whatever maneuver, and it totally fell flat on its face, and Sean landed awkwardly, and so did Kurt. Sean was able to execute a moonsault that Hennig ended up blocking and reversing into a clothesline, and then started working on the arm. Sean was able to escape Kurt long enough to climb to the top rope, but as he d- jumped off, he was hit with a series of arm drags, and Hennig went back to the arm bar on the mat. Mr. Perfect blocked a dropkick attempt from Michaels and used it, had the momentum to slingshot him over the top rope to the floor. Hennig went to the floor to go after Michaels, and that's when Diesel made his presence uh, known. He didn't interfere, but it was enough of a distraction for Sean to be able to hit a super kick to Hennig's face, followed by an elbow off the ring apron. Michaels threw Hennig back into the ring and went back to work on the possible damaged back, which history is uh, known for, of Kurt Hennig. Michaels focused his attack on Hennig, throwing him from pillar to post, and even stood on Hennig's back and stomped on him a few times in the corner. After escaping a backbreaker, Hennig came back with some shots to the midsection, a dropkick, a back body drop, and an atomic drop to Michaels. A stalemate backslide was turned into a perfect plex, but Diesel grabbed Kurt Hennig's foot to drag him to the outside to stop the count. A brawl ensued between all three men, and Hebner continued the count. 
Michaels was able to get in in time, and Hennig was counted out for the loss. Your winner, and still Intercontinental Champion, Shawn Michaels. I haven't seen this event in quite some time, and on paper you would think these two would have been amazing considering their track records and history of uh, putting on performances that are jaw-dropping. Unfortunately, for me, it didn't seem like these two had great chemistry in the ring. After being declared the winner, Hennig came back in to the ring and tried to attack both Sean and Diesel. However, the numbers game was just too much, and Hennig got beat down from the two dudes with attitude. Ty Pettengill was sent out to interview Sean on the way to the back, and Sean said, as you can tell, that he is the greatest intercontinental champion. Contrary to what Todd uh, thought, that the rightful champion should have been Mr. Perfect. Mr. Perfect ended up uh, recovering and running to the back. We once again see Joe Fowler in the back, interviewing now the 1-2-3 kid, as he prepares to go against Erwin R. Scheister. Kid uh, knew he was an underdog, but was willing to go out there and fight for what he believes in. Scheister was already in the ring, Insulting the audience in Detroit as Kid then made his way to the ring. 123 Kid was making his pay per view debut and had a lot of pressure on him, even though he had already beat Razor Ramon earlier to gain his uh, notoriety and contract with WWE, and he'd already beat Irwin's tag team partner, Ted DiBiase. However, in this occasion, Irwin Archester had the advantage almost from the beginning. Minus a few kicks that Kid got in there. Each and every time the Kid tried to make a comeback, he was stopped by Erwin Archeister. Scheister used the ropes while he had Kid in the abdominal stretch, a usual tactic of Mr. Scheister. Finally, Tim White caught the action and made the hold be released. That still didn't stop Scheister from being in control of the kid while on the mat with a uh, chin lock. The kid made a comeback, sending Scheister into the ropes when the turnbuckles hitting him a few times and even hit a moonsault, the same move that took out Razor Ramon. Unfortunately, in this case, it only got him a two count. Kid went back to the arm and tried rolling up Scheister and once again only got a two count. Scheister reversed Kid and came off the ropes with a right-off clothesline for the three-count and the victory. Todd Pengel was back in the audience, this time talking with Bruce and Owen Hart. Helen and Stu were supposed to be there, but unfortunately, due to an injury suffered when Stu confronted Jerry Lawler, he had to have knee surgery, so now the brothers were at ringside to support Brett as he took on Jerry the King Lawler, and they battled for being the true king of the ring. Brett made his way to the ring first to f- in this match against Jerry Lawler. It had been rumored by numerous sources, including TSN, that the main event for this event was supposed to be Hulk Hogan defending the WWF title against Bret Hart. However, that all came to an end when Hogan actually left the WWE after 
losing to Yokozuna at the King of the Ring, 1993. And the main event became Yokozuna versus Lex Luger after Luger slammed Yokozuna on the USS Intrepid and started his bus tour. Jerry Lawler's music began to play, and as he made his way out of the, through the curtain, you could see that he was not in any shape to wrestle, as he was on a set of crutches, and his knee, left knee was heavily bandaged and ice-packed. He made his way down to the ring to address the situation. Brad had a very suspect uh, look on his face, not believing the injury that Jerry is professing to have. Referees Jimmy Corderas, Bill Afonso, and Danny Davis all came out to the ring to stop Brett from getting out and attacking Lawler. Todd Pettengill approached Jerry to find out what exactly happened. Jerry claimed that he had a rental car from the great city of Detroit that failed and had no brakes or airbags and was stopped by a little blue-haired lady who caused a 10-car pileup. He was lucky to be alive, for that matter, and show up at SummerSlam. Lawler said Brett would still get his backside uh, beat down, but this time by his court jester, Doink the Clown. Doink came to the ring, carrying two buckets. He threw one of the buckets into the audience, and it was full of confetti. Then he turned to Owen and Bruce, and the second bucket was full of water, which Bruce was hit with. Both brothers came out of the audience and to ringside to attack Doink the Clown, but were stopped by the refs, and Brett took over instead, attacking Doink and throwing him into the ring. This was the original Doink, Matt Osborne, who was also known as Big Josh in WCW. Brett clotheslined Doink over the top rope to the floor and attacked him there, before throwing him back in the ring and going after him in the corner. Doink made an attempt to have a comeback and even went to the top rope, but was stopped by Brett, who then slammed his face onto the mat. Brett went to the outside and attempted to go after Jerry Lawler, but Doink recovered from his beatdown and went after Brett himself, gaining the advantage and finally taking Brett back to the ring slamming his face on the ring steps. Doink hit a knee breaker to Brett and then took him over to the corner, wrapping his knee around the ring post twice. Doink applied the STF, which Brett refused to tap out to. Doink put on the stump puller and even used the ropes to have an advantage, yet Brett still refused to tap out. Fonzie ended up seeing Doink with his hand on the rope and kicked it off to stop the hold. Doink missed a whoopee cushion from the top rope as he received a foot to the groin. Brett came back with a side Russian leg sweep, an elbow from the second rope, and then put Doink in the sharpshooter. Before Doink could submit, Jerry Lawler miraculously was healed and came into the ring, hitting Brett with his crutch, breaking it over the side of his head. Jerry continued with the beatdown with the crutch and celebrated as though he had the greatest victory and surprise of his life. Referee stopped Bruce and Owen from coming in to 
joining the melee. Fonzie questioned Jerry's knee problem as Lala got out of the ring and helped Doink to the back. But as they made it to the entrance, WD President or WF President Jack Tunney came out and questioned Lawler about his knee issues. More officials came out, including Jay Strongbow, Earl Hebner, Dave Hebner, Rene Goulet, and Pat Patterson, as Bret Hart tried to make his way and go after Jerry Lawler. Even Billy Red Lions was there. Jack Tunney made his way down to the ring and instructed Howard Finkel to say that the match will happen. Lawler was ordered to return to the ring and face Bret Hart, or he would be banned from the WWE for life. Bret was then allowed to go after Lawler and drag him back to the ring, including hitting him with one of Doink's uh, buckets that remained at ringside. Brett got uh, Lawler in the ring and started hitting him with fists and headbutts, and even biting him in the corner. Lawler tried to escape to the outside, and Brett followed behind and hit Lawler in the back with the other crutch that was left behind. Lawler was able to get an advantage over Brett by escaping and getting the crutch while hitting Brett again. He taunted the other two brothers at ringside, having the roughs distracted by them. Lawler returned to Brett and jammed the end of the crutch into Brett's neck at ringside. Back in the ring, Lawler continued to use the crutch and even had uh, Fonzie distracting with the Hart brothers who were yelling for him not to be able to use the crutch. Brett made his comeback, hitting Lawler with a mule kick, then some fists, a headbutt, back body drop, and then a pile driver uh, of Jerry's. He even took down his straps, almost like Jerry Lawler does when he's ready to wrap things up. Brett hit an elbow off the second uh, rope and then put Lawler into the uh, sharpshooter. Lawler held on for a moment, but then finally gave up. However, Brett never released the hold, even after being told to by Fonzie. Fonzie finally uh, had enough and reversed his decision, claiming that Jerry Lawler was now the winner via disqualification and the undisputed king of the WJF. This actually marked the final match of Doink having as a heel. He would soon turn face by attacking Jerry Lawler for setting him up like he did at this this feud between Brett and Jerry would last actually another two years and finally culminate when if you're looking to get into the wrestling business check out the Tyson Dukes Wrestling Factory his school is located right here in London, Ontario, Canada learn from one of Canada's best wrestlers around it's located at 309 Exeter Road, and it's open Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday, 6 p.m. till 8.30 p.m. The Tyson Dukes Wrestling Factory, teaching the new generation of hopefuls into superstars.
Ludwig Borga was shown in the streets of Detroit showing what Lex was going to be winning the title for in the middle of America. He'd done some videos of this leading up to SummerSlam and insulting Lex Luger as this was going to be his next uh, feud after Yokozuna was done. The next match was Marty Jannetty versus Ludwig Borga. It was originally supposed to be against Rick Martel, but Borga replaced Martel before the match. It had very little build-up, much like the Steiner Brothers and Heavenly Bodies. Marty Jannetty's motivation in this match was to defend the honor of the United States after Ludwig Borga had been doing multiple vignettes in the weeks leading up to this match, insulting the people of the United States for their lifestyles. Borga dominated this match with strikes to the midsection, clotheslines, and even knee strikes. Jannetty hit a couple of chin musics to Borga, but it wasn't enough, and Borga picked up Jannetty into the torture rack and won with the backbreaker by submission. It's kind of a shame that Borga's career didn't go as well as one would expect with how hot he came in and undefeated for a long time. He even took out Tatanka in his two-year undefeated streak, but it all was for naught. Next up was the Rest in Peace match. Harvey Whipplin accompanied Giant Gonzalez down to the ring. Still can't believe somebody actually made that costume for Giant Gonzalez as they look more like a Yeti. But thankfully it wasn't like the WCW Yeti of Ron Reese. Whippleman was in possession of Undertaker's urn, which he had stolen from Paul Bear. Undertaker then made his way down to the ring by himself, as Paul Bear was nowhere to be seen. The match started with Undertaker attacking Giant Gonzalez and choking him in the corner. He only released when Harvey Whippleman attempted to distract him and have the urn. Gonzalez made a comeback with chops and strikes to Undertaker's shoulders and head, including a headbutt. Undertaker tried to take down the giant with some clotheslines, but was not able to do so. Gonzalez then threw Undertaker to the ringside and followed up behind as they brawled on the floor. As this was a no-disqualification match and everything could happen, chairs and stairs and chains started getting introduced in the match as the two men brawled. Gonzalez used his size advantage over the Undertaker to dominate until the gong happened and out came Paul Bear carrying a black wreath to the ringside. Wilpelman manned up pretending not to be afraid of Paul Bear being at ringside, took off his jacket and went to attack Paul. While attacking him, he ended up getting hit by a clothesline. Paul made his way around the ring and reclaimed the coveted urn. Gonzalez picked up Undertaker for a body slam and then turned his attention to Paul Bear, who now was in possession of the urn. Bear lifted the urn in 
traditional fashion, causing the Undertaker to regain his power and sit up and bring the fight back to Giant Gonzalez. Taker bounced off the ropes multiple times, hitting Gonzalez with clotheslines in an attempt to chop the big man down and put him on the ground. Undertaker was finally able to get Gonzalez down to one knee. He went out to the outside and climbed to the top rope. As Gonzalez got off the mat and stood up, Taker hit him with a flying clothesline, crossed Gonzalez's arms over top of him, and got the three count. They brought in the uh, wreath and laid it beside Gonzalez as Undertaker and Paul Bearer did the traditional lifting of the urn and Undertaker bowing down, seeking the power. I think this is probably one of the first times Undertaker did some actual flying type uh, moves, as usually the Undertaker uh, up until then was very methodical and plodding, with all his matches being very slow-paced. I don't think it was until after he became the American Badass did he start actually being more athletic and producing the matches that we eventually would revere at WrestleMania, such as the ones against Triple H and Shawn Michaels. Back in the ring, Harvey Whippleman recovered and tried to explain to Gonzalez what exactly happened and how he was disappointed in Gonzalez for what happened. Gonzalez did not take too kindly to it and turned on Harvey Whippleman hitting him into the corner, and then hitting a choke slam before walking away from his manager. Gonzalez gathered up the wreath and laid it on top of Whippleman. Joe Fowler was in the back again with the combination of Yokozuna, Mr. Fuji, and Jim Cornette. Fowler couldn't help but point out the fact that the Heavenly Bodies lost to the Steiner Brothers. Jim Cornette complained that it was a Detroit ref and it was a hometown decision and will be taking it up with Jack Tunney. Then they focused their attention onto Yokozuna and his match with Lex Luger. Cornette said that no matter how much support Lex Luger had obtained during his campaign of going across the country on his Lex Express, there wasn't enough support or power from the fans to allow him to beat the mighty Yokozuna for the WWE Championship. The final match before the main event was a six-man tag team match. It was originally supposed to be a mixed tag with Tatanka and Sherry uh, meeting up with Bam Bam and Luna. However, Luna broke her arm, her arm and Sherry Martel left the WWF in July of 93. This forced WWE to change and make it a six-man tag, including the Smoking Guns and the Head Shrinkers. Bigelow and Tatanka started this uh, fight off as they were the initial two supposed to be feuding due to Bam Bam cutting parts of Tatanka's hair. Tatanka and Bigelow then tagged out. It was time for the two tag teams to take over and face each other. The two tag teams fought back and forth until the heels got the advantage over Bart and kept him in their corner. Tatanka got back in the ring and took control. He started his war dance, but Bigelow stopped him with a kick to the head. The end came 
When Bigelow and the headshrinkers each climbed to the turnbuckles and tempted spontaneous diving headbutts, but Tatanka rolled out of the way. He seized the opportunity and pinned Samu for the win. Hey, it's Jody Thread, and you're listening to Scumbags Podcast. Hey, this is the game, Triple H. The WWE truly is a global phenomenon. The WWE universe exists in more than 800 million homes worldwide and speaks over 25 languages. But Australia has been a home away from home for WWE for over 30 years. In 2002, though, we broke ground when I competed in a historic main event against The Rock and Brock Lesnar at the Global Warning pay-per-view. And now, I am truly honored and privileged to be able to announce WWE's long-awaited pay-per-view return to the land down under. WWE Super Showdown will take place in Melbourne, Australia at the iconic Melbourne Cricket Ground on Saturday, October 6th, live on the WWE Network. And we are bringing our biggest and best WWE superstars from both Raw and SmackDown Live, including John Cena, Roman Reigns, Sasha Banks, Braun Strowman, Charlotte Flair, AJ Styles, The New Day, Daniel Bryan, and the baddest woman on the planet, Ronda Rousey. Not to mention my opponent at WWE Super Showdown, the one and only, the phenom, The Undertaker. It has been six long years since one of the greatest rivalries in WWE history was said to be dead and buried. But legends, legends never die. The Undertaker and I have some unfinished business. At WWE Super Showdown, The Undertaker will once again know why I am the cerebral assassin. An Undertaker, I promise you, this is no game. So Melbourne, Australia, there's just one thing left to ask. Are you ready? This took us to our main event, with Yokozuna defending the WWF Championship against Lex Luger. It started off with Kyotoka Suzuki singing the Japanese national anthem. Former WWE superstar and member of the Orient Express, Akio Sato, was also there holding the Japanese flag. Howard Finkel then introduced the Macho Man Randy Savage, who then brought down Aaron Neville to sing the United States National Anthem. You would think with all the American flags being waved at the arena and waved by Aaron Neville that this would be July 4th, but it wasn't. It was actually August 30th. The lead-up to this match had Lex Luger uh, body-slamming Yokozuna on the USS Intrepid. Because Hulk Hogan could not body slam Zuna during their match at the King of the Ring, Yoko Zuna decided he would try to embarrass everybody who was an American citizen on the USS Intrepid on July 4th. He issued a body slam challenge, which many people ended up failing to do until Lex Luger arrived 
on a helicopter and confronted Yokozuna. To help with his momentum and support, Lex Luger got the Lex Express and traveled from coast to coast, shaking hands and kissing babies. Jim Cornette agreed to the match at SummerSlam, but he also made Lex Luger agree to two conditions, that if he lost, Luger would not get a rematch, and he had to wear protective padding on his steel-plated forearm, which was known to be used as a weapon against his opponents. Howard Finkel announced Yokozuna down to the ring, and Yoko came down with Jim Cornette and Mr. Fuji. They did the traditional salt ceremony in the corner before Randy Savage then took the microphone and welcomed Lex Luger down to the ring. Luger was pretty much an unlikely candidate to be a flag-waving patriot as he became, considering months before this he was still going by the narcissist Lex Luger. But with the departure of Hulk Hogan, the WD needed somebody else to fill those red, white, and blue flag-waving shoes that Hogan was so known for. Next up was Lex Luger, especially with his size and appeal. Definitely was somebody that Vince McMahon liked to have in that position. Luger and Yokozuna began with a stare-down, and Luger gained control by kicking the ropes into Yokozuna's groin. However, when he made to attempt to body slam Yokozuna, the weight was just too much, and Yokozuna hit a crescent kick to Lex Luger's face. This gave Yokozuna the advantage as Luger had to retreat to the outside. Yokozuna had uh, control with many strikes and headbutts. Yokozuna went to the outside and used some of his uh, ring gear to choke out Lex Luger before popping him up against a ring post. Zuna backed up and splashed Luger into the ring post and then grabbed a chair. Luger moved just in time to be able to then do some strikes towards Yuko and put him back into the ring. Luger came off the second rope and hit Yoko with a double axe handle, knocking him down but only got a two count. Luger went off the ropes and clotheslined Yoko from behind for another two count. A double clothesline put both men down with the referee counting. Jim Cornette then got up on the ring apron to distract the referee in his count. Mr. Fuji grabbed the bucket and tossed it to Yokozuna who hit Lex Luger in the head with the bucket. Yokozuna slowly crawled over to pin Lex Luger, but only got a two count. Yoko hit uh, Lex with some clubbing arms, back rake, and then a belly-to-belly suplex, but only got a two count. Lex Luger just barely kicked out of a side suplex from Yokozuna, and Yoko demanded the count to be quicker. From the looks of things, it actually was a slow count, as Luger was very slow to kick out. Luger made his way up to his feet and was then attacked again by Yokozuna with a snapmare takeover. Luger attempted a comeback with elbow strikes to the midsection, 
and then attempted a body slam, which was unsuccessful, and Yoko went for a two-count, followed by a leg drop. After another two-count and a kick-out, Yoko then dragged Lex Luger over to the corner and set him up for a bonsai drop. Yokozuna ended up missing the bonsai drop, and the two men started battling back and forth, with Lex finally gaining the advantage. Yokozuna missed a splash into the corner, allowing Lex to come out of it and pick him up for the slam. Mr. Fuji got up to the uh, ring apron and wanted to try and distract Lex and got a punch to the face as retaliation. Lex lured his forearm protection and hit Yokozuna with a forearm, sending him to the outside. The referee began counting. Jim Cornette tried to stopped the count, but it was not to happen, and Yokozuna was counted out, giving Lex Luger the victory, but not the WWF title. Randy Savage came down to celebrate with Lex Luger, along with the Steiner brothers and Tatanka. The Steiner brothers lifted uh, Luger onto their shoulder as Savage handed Luger the American flag to be waved. In the aftermath of everything, Borga would be pushed to main event status, feuding with Lex Luger and leading to each man forming a team for the Survivor Series. Luger continued to work as main event wrestler, although he never won the WF Championship and competed against Yokozuna at WrestleMania 10 as one of the two championship matches thanks to winning the Royal Rumble with Bret Hart. Unfortunately, all this push was all for naught, and he eventually left WWF to go back to WCW in September of 95 on the premiere episode of Monday Nitro. Balloons and streamers started falling from the ceiling of the palace in Auburn Hills, and we have no clue why. It was a rather shallow victory with no title, and going coast-to-coast in the Lex Express seemed useless. Lex Luger, years later, was on ShootInterviews.com, where he was asked what happened and why he didn't win the WWF Championship. Ceiling? The music... Now, at SummerSlam, Lex, you don't win the world title. Why? I won the match. All the balloons came out of the ceiling. The music played. The graffiti fell. Why didn't you win? I don't know. Win the belt. Ask Vince. Shouldn't this have been the the the, the, the culmination of the song? Yes. I thought so. It would have been, I thought it would have been a good idea. Did you I never ask? Honest. Did you never ask? I was the Mets, I was from the old Matsuda mold, you know. Good foot soldier. If, Vince wants you to win the title, he'll tell you that night at the building, and if not, you just, you carry on. Press on. Is it, were you told that you were going to be, is it going to be following WrestleMania? It's going to be the switch? Is is it? Vince did tell me that when he, that day at the building, because he never promised I was going to win the belt at SummerSlam. Everybody assuming I was, because of the momentum of the tour, but he never promised me that. And he, uh, he said, you know what? I thought about maybe... 
going your way with as far as the world title at SummerSlam. But he goes, and, and um, he said, but WrestleMania 10, because that's going to be such a, he had such a vision of what that was going to be. That was going to be very special times. He goes, if I decide to put the bell on you, I'd rather do it there. Even after this whole buildup with the Lex Express, odd. He didn't know, I really, he didn't even know me that. He didn't have to have a reason why I didn't win in my opinion. And plus, I, I didn't expect to really get the belt anyways. Because Yokozuna was such a great, and he was the showstopper. When he came out, man, I don't know if you were at the matches when he was champion ever, but, man, the building got silent. I mean, that was a, he had a presence. So I, I had no idea. I thought maybe I might get the belt, and maybe he'd, he'd like, sit on me and hurt me and take it back. Yeah. But I, I didn't have a vision of me being at that point in time in my career, being like long time, like they were running with Lex Babyface champion or anything. Really? So I thought maybe I might win it for SummerSlam and he might win it back. Or maybe if I do win the belt, might be, like Vince said, maybe we'll do it at WrestleMania 10. And he was sincere. It wasn't like, well, I know I'm taking a risk here. And I, I thought, I think that if he did make me champion, I think partly because we had such a good personal relationship, he wanted to make it really special. Right. And Vince is so confident that I felt he felt he could rev it back up. Like, have SummerSlam. Oh, man, I, I got... I, Yoko's outside of the ring. If Yoko's still champion, that I, I truly believe Vince is such a confident promoter that he felt that if I want to rev you and Yoko back up, man, for, for a WrestleMania in the, in the spring, I, I, we can do it. Really? With that much distance from the... You know, okay. I think he's very confident in his ability to promote a match... I think he said, oh, man, look what he did on the aircraft carrier. I think he said, man, on one show, I can have you and Yoko as a focal point again. Had to, had to do WrestleMania. I, 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 I truly believe he's that confident. You always were there, always beside me. Holding my hand every step of the way Through these eyes you could do no wrong In these eyes you were brave and strong In my heart those days live on You were my hero
Thanks for joining me on this first of many to come of the throwback time machine. We'll continue with some more SummerSlam as we lead up to SummerSlam 2018. Stay tuned to our Facebook page where you can vote on what the next show will be. Till next time, take it easy. Thank you for joining me for this look back at SummerSlam 1993. If there's any other events you'd like to have uh, reviewed, please send me a line at our Facebook page at Scumbags Wrestling. And be sure to look out for other polls with other choices to have as well, not just the right-in ones. Until next time, have a good one.